Well, how you guys doing today? Enjoying this weather? You know, driving to church this morning, I kind of looked. I think the ducks are a little bit confused. They think it's springtime. But uh, they're not from around here. And they don't realize this is still mid-January. And that colder weather is eventually going to get here. You realize that, right? I mean, it's going to be here. But let's enjoy this small moment of reprieve. I mean, it's supposed to be like 60 plus degrees today. Some of you guys already have your flip-flops on and you're, you know, you're ready for the pool and all that kind of stuff. Just don't get ready just yet because I'm convinced, and I believe, cooler weather's on the way at some point. We're going to have a couple of more snows before this is over with, so let's just enjoy the afternoon while we have it. What do you think about that? Go out and do some yard work today. No, don't do that. Anyway. As we begin our study this morning, I want to tell you a little story. It's an, it's an old, familiar story to many of you, but, you know, sometimes the cobwebs and, and, and our memories aren't quite what they used to be, right? And so here's, here's an old story, but it's a good one. It's about a little boy who got on the airplane to visit his, his grandparents during the summer. And as he got on the airplane, he got his seat. Of course, children are always escorted on early, and this man came a little bit late, and he got on the plane and sat next to the young boy. Well, as he sat next to the young boy, this elderly man thought, it's going to be kind of a difficult, hard journey for me. I mean, this kid's going to be, you know, rambunctious, noisy, in and out of his seat, just continue to expect the worst. And they buckled up, and the plane took off, and as they sort of, you know, got to the altitude they were supposed to, and the pilot came on and said, you know, they could relax, and everything's fine. He noticed the little boy got out of his backpack a Bible. And uh, he was very well-behaved, very well-mannered, and it was a, a great ride so far. And, and this, this elderly man, you see, was an atheist, if not an agnostic, and doesn't really believe in the, the stories or the, the truths of the Bible. And he watched with rapt fascination this 10-year-old little boy get out his very large Bible, and he watched the boy turn to the book of Jonah of all passages the book of Jonah and he watched this little boy read Jonah with incredible intensity he didn't stir he didn't move he read and he flipped the pages and he read some more and and it caught the attention of the elderly man and finally the older man interrupted the young boy and he said young man can, can I talk to you and ask you a few questions he said sure he said what are you reading the young boy said well I'm reading about Jonah what is it that you find so fascinating about Jonah? He said, well, Jonah is a, is a great character in the Old Testament. He's, he's a guy who runs from God and buys a ticket to go to a foreign land, and God interrupts that trip, and there's a storm, and they throw him overseas, and God prepares a large fish, a whale, and he swallows up Jonah, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, and then he repents, and the whale spits him out, and he goes to Nineveh to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to those unbelievers. The man thought for a second and said, well, young man, how do you know that that story is true? The boy thought for a second and said, well, he said, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to look up Jonah, and Jonah's going to tell me exactly what happened. And I'm convinced that exactly what happened is recorded right here in the book of Jonah. I believe it's true because Jonah's going to tell me in heaven it's going to be true. And it's true, and I believe it. The elderly man thought for a minute and asked the little fellow, well, young man, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? The little boy thought for a second and looked up and smiled, and as he grinned, he said, well, then, mister, you can ask him. Yeah. 
You know, it's easy for us to spot the agnostics. It's easy for us to spot the unbelievers. It's easy for us to spot the people that are hostile toward what we believe to be the truth. I mean, they're flagrant, they're loud, they're large, they're in your face. They are constantly battling us and confronting us and challenging us in regard to the truths of the Bible and about what we believe to be true about Jesus. And so we somehow, when we see them coming and we hear their questions and we deal with their concerns, they're easily spotted. I mean, it's like a cannonball coming. But what's hard for us often to detect is what I want to call the BBs, not the cannonballs. Because a BB is harder to see than a cannonball, isn't it? And by BBs, I mean those people who are among us, who are with us, who have disguised themselves as people like us. They proclaim the same things that we proclaim. They testify many times of the same things that we testify. They sit in our life groups and our services and in our churches and on our committees and all of those things, and yet they, they, they just really aren't one of us. They're not. They look the part. They sound the part. They somewhat act the part. And we have a tendency when we're around those sort of people to sort of lower our guard and, and not really look with a kind of you know, discerning spirit that we often sometimes look at those agnostics or those atheists that confront us on a regular basis. Even in Wichita, Kansas, we have many people like that, and you may work with some. You see, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is addressing his disciples, and he's given a long discourse in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and 7, 1 through 11. He's given this lengthy discourse about what a disciple is to look like, how they are to act, what are their characteristics. And, and he challenges his disciples to step outside of the crowd of this, this pharisaical, idealistic, this, this self-righteous sort of approach to to eternal life that is not working, that will never work, and to step inside of the realm of putting their faith and trust in him and living life from a different vantage point, from a new character, a new nature, a new quality of life that's only found in him. To die to themselves and to embrace him and the lifestyle that he has for them. And he challenged us last week to step through what he called a narrow gate and into a very narrow way. Remember? A narrow gate that leads to a very narrow way. Don't go through the wide gate that leads to a very wide and very broad way because that path leads to destruction. We who are disciples are being challenged to go through the narrow gate and to live by the narrow way. And the tendency that we see and we find in in our Christianity and in our discipleship, as Jesus is challenging his disciples and us today, even today, that as we enter into the narrow way, Satan has already lost the battle for our souls. But now there's a battle for our theology. There's a battle for our doctrine. There's a battle now for how we practice our faith. And as we enter the narrow gate and we seek to live by that narrow way, the enemy seeks to come in among us to pretend to be one of us and to get that narrow way and to broaden that way, to 
push against it, to shove against it, to make it not quite so narrow, a little bit more palatable, a little bit more tolerable, a little bit more giving, so to speak. And by doing that, he then continues to push and push and push. And the objective the enemy has is to make now the narrow way a broad way rather than the narrow way that Jesus says we must enter and how we should live. There's a danger here. And Jesus is concerned for his disciples. And he's calling his disciples to guard against that deception. For it is very subtle, subtle, it is very cunning, he is very devious, and he's very sly, and he puts on masks, and he plays games, and there's a pretense, and he lives, and works, and eats, and fellowships, and communes among us, trying to work his way into our trust, so that we will then trust him, trust what he says, and we then begin with him to push against those barriers, so that you know, the way's not so constricting, the way's not so narrow, the way's a little more tolerant, uh, the way is a little bit more, are you ready for this, a little more politically correct. Politically correct. Jesus does not give one ounce, care one ounce about being politically correct because it's a narrow way. And I don't know about you, but the narrow way can't be a narrow way and be politically correct. It's a narrow gate, and it's a narrow way. And so Jesus wants his disciples to guard against deception. So I want to take a look at the passage that we want to sort of digest a little bit this morning, beginning with the passage that he read. But I want us to go to, to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want us to start out with this because I think it sort of helps set the pace for where we're going in. And God, through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, tells a young man named Timothy, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some of you will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In the latter times, we who, who are of the faith and who adhere to the truth of the faith, some of us will depart from that faith, and the reason we will depart from that faith is that we will buy into these, we will devote ourselves to the deceitful spirits who are teaching doctrines of demons. I'm convinced that these spirits, these teachings, these demonic doctrines have already found their way into the church today. We're already here. And because we're already here, I believe we're getting closer to the end time. The time when Christ is going to return as he promised he would. Again, as the Apostle Paul writes a second letter to young Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 4. He said, I charge you in the same presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready. Sounds almost like he's what he's about to say to us. Beware. Be ready. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. Are we already there? The time will come 
when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own, notice the word, passions, their own carnal nature, their own fleshly appetites, the passion for the flesh. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Into myths. A couple of, oh, almost, well, a decade and a half ago, I used to pastor the First Baptist Church in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And one of the things that usually used to blow my mind in Santa Fe, New Mexico, are the, uh, are the, are the articles that are found in the religious section on the Sunday morning newspaper. Now, Santa Fe was an unusual city, unlike any other place I'd ever pastored. And uh, it was the center for probably New Age and, and witchcraft and all kinds of things. I mean, anything go, went there. <laughs> and uh, you looked in the religious section where people were inviting us to attend church, those of us who, who bought the paper, and you looked in there to their services. And it would blow my mind how many different sects, religions, and false prophets, and all that there were in Santa Fe. Small town. 150,000 maybe? Well, it doesn't surprise you, it doesn't shock me that some of the same things in Santa Fe go on in Wichita. And just pick up the paper from time to time and read some of the stuff that's in there and the invitations they're extending to you to come to their services. Now, some of these are very, very out in your face and they're, very, they're like cannons. You can spot them a mile away before they hit and you could duck them, but some of them are like BBs. They're a little bit harder to detect. And if you're not careful, you'll become a victim to their doctrinal teachings because they're very sly, they're very subtle, and, and they're very cunning in, their, in their, their presentation and their proclamation of what they claim to be the truth. And it sounds like what we've heard before, and it seems agreeable to do what they're asking, but the end that they're teaching leads to destruction. It leads to death. And Jesus is afraid of what is to come for his disciples. For he knows it's not going to be long that he's going to die on a cross and he's going to leave the responsibility of the church that's about to be planted and to be started with his disciples. And he's wanting them, as admonishing Timothy here, I want you to be on guard. I want you to beware because there will be false prophets that will arise not only from outside but from inside of your community of faith and they will be very, very destructive. And so Jesus is calling them to guard them against deception. Let's take a look at the words of Jesus himself as he admonishes us and them to be on guard, to be alert, to be actively involved. Number one, let's go talk about three things. The call to be disciplined, the call to be discerning, and there's a call to be, I'm going to use the word defiant. And now I know that word sometimes isn't used in Christianity, but here it's a good thing to be defiant, to be rebellious against those that would want to sort of trick us into uniting and joining in them for the purpose of unity or for the purpose of peace or for the purpose of political correctness. But anyway, here we go. The words of Jesus, verse 15, the call to be disciplined. Notice he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That word beware gives us the word discipline because the word beware simply means to be, to be on alert, to be guarded, to be 
watchful, to be attentive, to be alert, to be on guard. And it takes discipline to stay alert while you're on the post. If you've ever been in the military and you have been put on guard to watch for the enemy to come, you better not fall asleep on the job. What happens to people who fall asleep when they've been put in that post to watch for the enemy? Somebody tell me. Should be shot. And it takes discipline sometimes to stay awake because you're as tired as everybody else. That's why you take turns, right? And the discipline here is to stay alert, to stay awake, to stay attentive, to stay on guard, to stay watchful, to stay, you know, awake. Because if you're not careful, you're going to fall victim to what's about to happen. And he says, beware, be disciplined, be Guarded, be watchful, be alert. Why? Notice he says the reason why. A false prophet who comes to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Why are we be alert? Because these people are dishonest. These, this enemy that is coming is a dishonest enemy. He is a false prophet. A prophet is simply someone who comes in the name of the Lord. They are someone who declares themselves to be God's spokesman, and what they are saying, what they are proclaiming, what they are teaching, what they are wanting you to buy in, is that these words come from the Lord, and because they come from the Lord through me as his vessel, you are to not only hear them, receive them, and to act upon them. And these prophets, he says, are false. One of the commentators I like, he said the word false means bogus. I like that word bogus. Bogus. They're liars. They claim to be spokesmen from God, but they are liars. They are false prophets. They don't speak for the Father. They speak for Satan. They are false. They are dishonest. But notice they are also deliberate. He says, these false prophets who come to you. These false prophets, they come to you. You don't have to seek them out. They will seek you out. They will come to you. They're like a hunter that is after his prey to kill them. They seek them out. I don't know about you, but deer don't normally come into your backyard and say, shoot me. Do they? You got to go to where they are. And when you go to where they are, you set up and you wait for them to come by. You are going after them. And here it describes these wolves who are in pursuit of of their victims, they are in pursuit of their prey who come to you. And I guarantee you, you could be minding your own business, reading your Bible, studying the Word in Mike's theology class, how about that for commercial, and Satan is still going to come to you where you are and try to make you its next victim. They'll come to you. They're deliberate. But notice, they're deceptive. Who come to you, how? In sheep's clothing. A sheep is a clean animal. It was used for sacrifice. But here the description, Jesus says, they come to you like sheep. In other words, they disguise themselves as members of the flock. But Jesus described us as what? (laughs) Sheep. And so they're disguised as sheep. They're disguised as one of us. They're disguised as one of us. They're they're projecting something that somehow convinces us they must be one of us because I recognize them by how they look. They are even professing to some degree what we recognize as some 
facsimile of truth. And here they are professing and presenting themselves as a member of the flock. And I think, as I said earlier, that's one of the reasons why I think sometimes they're hard to detect is because they're one of us. They're among us. They're in life group and they're in worship service and in the fellowships and they're, they're, they're among us and they look like us. They smell like us. They, they've got some of the behavior that we do, they've got it down. And so because we're around them, we get familiar with them and we let our guard down and we let them in close proximity and we begin to trust them, but they're not trustworthy because they're wolves. I've got some coyotes around my house. I'm certainly not going to feed them and try to make a pet out of them. I hear what they do in my, my neighborhood in the middle of the night and the cries that they live out. They're, they're, they're on the prowl. And they come to you, and they come to you in sheep's clothing. They are dishonest, deliberate, deceptive, but they are depraved. Notice they, are, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they are wolves. You see, it's hard for us to see someone's heart, isn't it? Because we judge on the exterior. We look at the outside. We somehow have a tendency to think that if this televangelist is successful and he's got a big showing and if he's got a big book or if he's got some new revelation and he's on the TV screen, he must be of God. The answer to that is not. Not. It's not about success. It's not about television broadcasting. It's not about numbers in the audience of your worship services. Because they are very deceitful. They were inwardly ravenous wolves. They have not been transformed by the power of the gospel. They don't have the new heart and the new life. And and they don't have Christ. They don't possess him as their savior. Inwardly they are depraved. They are carnal. They are fleshly. And all they want to do is devour you. But notice not only that, but lastly, they're devious. Because they're ravenous. They put on an air of wanting to help you and facilitate your spiritual progress. But what they want to do is hurt you, harm you, and kill you. That's their primary motive, is to kill you. To kill any spiritual life that you could possibly exhibit that God could use through the power of the Holy Spirit to actually make an impact in the world in which you have been purposed to live for Christ. Because I'm convinced if he can destroy your doctrinal positions and your beliefs in the truth and the word, he's got you one step closer to destruction. Take, with, take your Bible real quickly, and I have a couple of verses on the screen because I know sometimes it's hard to see where you are. I, I want to I chase a couple of verses real quickly in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Matthew 24, 11. Here's a commercial for my class. We're going to be talking about the return of Christ tonight, so we're going to be going back to this first. But Matthew 24, 11, notice the words of Jesus, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, notice this, if possible, who? Even the elect. If you don't think 
that this, these, this wolf is after you and you're saved, you're redeemed, you've been bought by the blood of Christ and you're eternally destined for heaven, you don't think Satan's going to leave you alone, you need to wake up. Because he's wanting, if possible, to deceive even the elect. Acts 20. Here, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the Ephesian church in Acts 20, 28. He says to the Ephesian church, Pray, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He's talking about the sacrifice and the life that Christ gave on the cross in order to redeem them and to bring them into the family and the flock. And he's telling these leaders, first of all, Guard yourselves first. You've got to take care of yourself first before you can take care of anybody else. You can't go defend the faith unless you're, you're armed for battle, okay? So you've got to equip yourself. You've got to guard yourself, and then you can then guard others. That's what he's saying to them. But notice verse 29. I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves will come in among you. Where are they going to come? In among you. They're not from the outside. They're on the inside already. They're going to come from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things, distorted things, half-truths to draw away the disciples after them. What's their target? The disciples. The disciples. They're constantly trying to it's not that narrow, man. Come on. Let's, let's get, make it broader. Come on. It's not that. Come on. Twisted things. Not on the screen. 2 Corinthians 11. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to make my case here pretty hard. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... If even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, what is, Satan, what is Satan doing? Disguising himself as what? As an angel of light. Is he an angel of light? He's an angel of darkness. But he's disguising himself, presenting himself as someone that's going to bring light into your darkness, truth, life-giving truth into your dead life, and yet he's disguising himself. He's not really an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, last verse, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly, notice, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, verse 2, and many will follow their, notice, their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I think we need to be really, 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 really careful here and to be disciplined, to be on guard, to be watchful, to be on alert because there are deceivers among us. Now, I'm not saying they're in... Emmanuel Baptist Church. 
Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not one of them, are you? But they could be. I joke with Mark all the time that there's a famous theologian, and I, I think he is, uh, he said when Satan fell out of, the, out of heaven, he fell into the choir loft. So the deceiver's in the, no, I'm just kidding. We have to be on alert. We have to beware. We have to be on guard. We have to be watchful. We have to be disciplined. Least we become the next victim. Not only should we be disciplined, but we should be discerning. Notice the text that he says in verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes, great question, gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Notice the discerning ability that he says we must possess. We must, be, we must possess the power of discernment. But in, in possessing the power to discern, there's a promise in this text. For he says, you will recognize them. You will. This is futuristic tense. It's acknowledging that there's an action or there's an activity that is in the future and that it's going to become reality. You are going to be able and you're going to have real ability to be able to distinguish, to discern those which are of God and those which are not. So don't be afraid. There is the spiritual gift of discernment, I believe. And some of us have that spiritual gift, but even though we don't have or possess the spiritual gift of discernment, we can strengthen that muscle, as we're going to see in just a moment. So as we strengthen the muscle of discernment, we'll be able then to discern the spirits and discern whether or not someone is telling the truth or they're telling a lie. And so he says, you will be. That's a promise. And the power of discernment is in what we recognize. You will recognize them how? By their fruits, plural, Fruits. Somebody, well, I thought the gift of the spirit, the, the the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five was singular. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. It, it is singular. But here, fruits is plural, I believe, because he's about to. Jesus is about to talk about two trees with two different types of fruit. There's one tree. Notice that's yielding fruit, and it's a good tree. And what sort of fruit does it yield? Good fruit. There's a bad tree on the other side of the explanation, and because it is bad, it yields what? Bad fruit. Why does the good tree yield good fruit and the bad tree yield bad fruit? Because there's a visible difference in the fruit that they yield because of the tree itself. The very nature of the tree is bad, and because the nature of the tree is bad, what it yields is bad fruit. And because the tree has a good nature, it yields good fruit. So you will recognize them by their fruit. There is a visible outgrowth that happens in the lives of those who are projecting and who are professing Christ. In other words, you'll be able to determine what sort of profit they are by their life, by the fruit that manifests itself from their life. In other words, become a fruit inspector. 
How many of you, when you go to the, the grocery store and you're buying fruit, pick it up and squeeze it a time or two? Do you do that? Why do you examine it and squeeze it? You're inspecting it. You can't tell whether or not it's, well, you can tell a little bit if it's a good fruit to buy or not simply by its appearance, but you also want to squeeze it, right? But, but he's saying there's a visible, and, 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 and what he's saying here, you need to be really, really careful that there are visible outgrowths that reveal whether or not the fruit that this tree is producing is good or bad. So examine them based upon their fruit. So we have the power then to be able to examine a person's life by the fruit of what they say and how what they teach then manifests itself out in the lives of those who sit under their teaching. Not just their lives, but also the lives of those who sit under their teaching and follow their teaching. It's the teaching and the life, I think, that Jesus is referencing here. There's a, there's a, a product that they are delivering, that they are producing, and by that product, you can tell whether or not it is a good tree or a bad tree, a good prophet or a bad prophet. But notice, I think, in the interesting question, not only do we have the power to discern, but he talks about the practice of discernment. He asked the question in the practice, and I think it's unusual. And I, I sort of got this really late last night. In, in, the, in the question, he said, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A thorn bush produces a fruit. It's a berry. And from a distance, that berry looks like a grape. But when you get up close and personal with it, you realize it's not a grape. And if you were to ignore its appearance and pick it anyway and try to make wine or Welch's grape juice out of that, <laughs> what would be the end result? Bad. Why? Because it, it's, it's not a grape. He says here, the figs don't come from thistles. A thistle had a flower, and from a distance, it looked like that on the thistle, it was a fig. But as you get close up and personal with that thistle, you would recognize that what at first appeared to be a fig is, in fact, not a fig. So therefore, after getting up close and personal and examining that which is not what it appeared, you would not then take it and try to ingest it because it would not be the kind of in, you know, result that you would want. And the word here is gathered. It's an interesting word. And it puts us now in an aspect of trying now to examine the quality of what is being produced. And the quality of the bad tree is bad, so therefore we reject it. And the quality of the good tree is good, so therefore we receive it and we ingest it and we live it out. And we are to use the power of discernment and to practice discernment, I'm convinced, in anything and everything we hear. And I want to encourage you, honestly, don't take just what I say up here at face value because, to be quite honest with you, I need you to check me out to make sure that what I say is accurate and right. We should, we should discern everyone that stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. Everyone including myself. Notice what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, that by testing, give me the next slide, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You have the power to test to make sure that that is or isn't the will of God. Philippians 1, 9-11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How? With knowledge and with discernments. So that you may approve what is excellent. Why do you need discernment? To be able to approve what is excellent. And so to be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. If you don't put things to the test and discern what you hear and ingest and digest into your soul in order to live them out, you're doing yourself a a huge disservice and you won't be ready for the day when Christ will return as he promised he would. Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers, notice this, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Who have their powers of discernment trained by constant, by constant practice to distinguish good. To be trained. How are you trained? Who's going to train you? Let me tell you something. It doesn't happen by osmosis. When I was a student in, in, in high school and college and two times in seminary, you can't put books underneath a pillow and sleep on them and t- get up the next morning and take the test. That doesn't fly. Does it fly? I think there are too many people today who are willing to be spoon-fed truth and who aren't themselves digging into the meat of the Word of God. We have a bunch of lazy Christians today who are watching and listening to all kinds of shenanigans that's nothing but filthy lies from false prophets and false messages, and they're acting on them as if they were truth because they're lazy. They're not willing to dig into the truth of the Word of God and study for themselves and to exercise their spiritual muscle to figure out what is true and what isn't true. And we have churches that are filled to the capacity. They're listening to all kinds of fables and trickery and lies straight from doctrines of demons. And they're acting on them as if they were reality, but they're false. And they will not be ready for the return of Christ. We've got to exercise our spiritual discernment and study and prepare and dig deep and grow spiritually. Don't be a baby, shallow, infant Christian still, you know, give me milk. It's time to let go of the pacifier, people, and, and get into the meat of the Word of God and study it for yourself so that you can be prepared. Galatians 2, 4, 5. Yet because of false brothers, notice what it says, Galatians 2, 4, 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They slipped in secretly. That's how subtle and how sly the enemy is. They sneak in secretly in sheep's clothing, pretending to be of the flock and of the family. Jude 1, tough, tough book, Jude. Notice what God says through this wonderful writing, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I wanted to write about, our, about salvation, but I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for your faith. 
You need to fight the good fight. You need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed, (laughs) designated for his condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We have got to be discerning people in regard to what is true and what is false because false teachers and prophets are among us. And, and, and many of us are just buying into it. We're falling victim to their trickery and their deceit. And the end result is not a favorable result. Notice lastly then, in, in Jesus' words, it's a call not only to discipline and discerning, to be discerning, but it's a call to be defiant, to be defiant. And, and the reason why I'm calling us to be defiant is because we have got to refuse. We have got to refuse to compromise. We have got to resist the cultural trend that we see in many so-called Christian churches today who are trying to get us to be politically correct and to, to, to get that narrow way of, of, of Christ to expand it, to be more inclusive, to be more tolerant, to be less demanding so that it can appeal, appeal to our carnal, fleshly appetites. We've got to be defiant. Jesus says in verse 9, in verse. Um, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Take a look at the text. The the subjects are all included here. Every tree, there's an inclusion here. Every tree, there's a universality here. All who are of the bad fruit, every single one of them, every tree that produces bad fruit, every tree that, notice the standard, that does not bear good fruit, that's the standard. The standard is good fruit. We're going to judge the quality of the fruit by whether it's good or bad. And if it's bad fruit, then you don't, you don't, you don't make the, the quality cut, man. You don't get put on the shelf. You don't make it to heaven. We've talked about this several times in the last 10 plus months where Jesus in John 5, 6, and 7 verses 1 through 11 is giving us a standard that we ourselves cannot meet independently of ourselves on our own. We need a Savior who comes in and who transforms us into his likeness, but we must make that choice. And we can't, we can't produce the quality of this fruit on our own. We need Christ, but these people don't possess Christ, and because they don't possess Christ, they don't possess the right character and the right nature to produce the right kind of fruit. So therefore, their fruit, when it's being inspected, are not living up to the quality and the standards that are, that are demanded by the Father who sits on the throne and who sits in judgment of that fruit. And notice then the eternal sentence that will fall upon them is cut down and thrown into the fire. What are they? They are cut down and they are thrown into the fire. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus 
follows John the Baptist. And he preaches similar message of John the Baptist. We find out early on in Matthew where Jesus too preaches like John a gospel of repentance. What was, what was the gospel, what was the message that John preached? We have the, the shortest, most comprehensive synopsis of John the Baptist's message who was a forerunner of Jesus. Notice what he says in Matthew 3. And I'll, I'm going to close here. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brought a vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Notice what he says in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not pressure to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. What do you do with an axe? Cut down the trees. Jesus is on the way. The root is at the at the the, the, the axis at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Get down to verse 12. The winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's going to happen to that which doesn't belong in the barn? It's going to be burned up. Who's going to do that? Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15, how do we produce fruit that passes the test? In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Some of you say, well, I feel like I'm being pruned already. Pruning is, is never fun, it's never easy, and it's always painful. But he's doing that so that he can bear more fruit in us. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, notice, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, unless you're connected to him, you can't bear fruit. And you abide in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. How much fruit? Much fruit. What kind of fruit do you think it is? Bad fruit or good fruit? Good fruit. Do you think it's going to pass the quality control guy whose name is Jesus? For apart from me, you can do nothing. For anyone who does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and they are burned. What is the consequence of these false teachers and their false proclamation? Eternal condemnation and punishment in a place reserved for those who are not authentic, who are not real. There's a warning here for us. And we need to be really, really careful in this warning that Jesus gives us. And there are three responses that I want to challenge you to think about as we close. Am I 
alert, and disciplined. Are you alert and disciplined? Have you fallen asleep? Have you gotten lazy, apathetic, indifference, expecting to be spoon-fed? Are you actively being discerning, not just taking in everything, but, 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 but testing the spirits and using your spiritual discerning gift and the knowledge that you have, flexing your spiritual discerning muscle to know what is true and what is not true so that you don't become victim to the next wolf that tries to come into your life and seek you out to destroy you and to hurt you and to harm you and to rob you of the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ? Are you aggressively being defiant to the cultural shift that we have today that's wanting to squeeze into our lives and make make that narrow path a little bit broader because, you know, you just can't be that narrow and grow a church today. You can't be that narrow and maintain your faith in Jesus today. It's, it's not accepting. It's not loving. It's not right. It's not a Jesus thing. Really. Jesus said the narrow gate and a narrow way. Jesus said, as we saw already in the Sermon on the Mount, he came to fulfill the scriptures, not remove them or get rid of them. Christ is calling us for response without delay because time is of the essence and the victims that the enemy is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy could be you, could be me, could be our children, and definitely it is this church. Let's pray.